Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. And in spite of what the bulletin cover says, that is an error. That was my title for last Sunday. And some of you may be glad because that was a 58-minute sermon. I I did some research. That was the second longest sermon I've ever preached in 16 years here. So we are not doing that again. The title of my sermon is this, A Theology of Suffering. So grab your copy of God's Word and open it to John chapter 16. You may want to grab a copy of the message notes that is inside your bulletin. And I want to let particularly some of our guests know that the regular diet of preaching we have here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church is what's known as expositional preaching, whereby generally we preach through whole books of the Bible. This is now sermon number 64, if you're keeping track through the Gospel of John, and the goal of expositional preaching is this, that the central point of the passage becomes the central point of the sermon. We don't bring our human ideas to the Bible and try to make them fit. No, we form our ideas from the Bible, and that's the goal of our preaching here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church. Uh, We are at the tail end of what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. This is the end of chapter 13, 14, 15. Now we're concluding 16, and we'll go into chapter 17, Lord willing, next week. As we go into chapter 17 next week, it's what's known as the high priestly prayer, where it's just John's record of Jesus praying intimately to the Father. So the passage we're going to look at today is the last discourse, the last teaching from Jesus to the 11 disciples before he'd be hanging on a cross. And as such, it is particularly poignant for them and, friends, for us as well. He would be led away by the horde of soldiers and by the religious leaders. He would enter into some of the deepest sorrow and pain imaginable. But just before that, he gives them these instructions here in chapter 16. So we'll begin reading at verse 16. This is the inspired word of God. We'll read to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask 
in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. At some point in our lives, sooner or later, usually when we're in the adult stage, we will utter the words or something like these words, I didn't think my life would turn out this way. Something happens. Some trial, some tragedy, some hardship, some affliction. Uh, Usually this type of statement is spoken after a major trial, after a major ordeal, a time of sorrow. I did not think my life would turn out this way. It happens when a marriage fails. I didn't think my life would turn out this way. It happens when there's a sudden job loss. I did not think my life would turn out this way. Or an unexpected medical crisis or The loss of a loved one seemingly untimely or too early. I did not think my life would turn out this way. In fact, on Tuesday, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. And we hadn't spoken for a couple of months. The last time we spoke, he called me because he was seeking some advice, seeking some counsel and prayer. And a couple of months ago, he told me, Troy, I just discovered from my daughters that my young adult son is in a homosexual relationship. And he says, tomorrow I'm driving to his dorm room at his college, and I'm going to talk to him. What do I say? How do I speak? We had that conversation. He called me uh, Tuesday to give me an update. He said, Troy, I told him I, I love him. He'll always be my son, but I had to be clear, I do not believe this is inside God's design for human relationships. And he says, since that conversation, he has broken off all conversation with me and my wife. I did not think my life would turn out like this. Those are hard situations. Those are painful realities, and they all raise all kinds of questions. Usually, the questions are something to do with God. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, can you hear me? But another question they raise, or at least they should raise, is this. Will I be ready when the trial comes? Will I be ready when the suffering comes? You see, a lot of times we are, in fact, surprised by suffering. Indeed, that's exactly the situation here that these disciples are in. They had been walking with Jesus for three years. 
They had left their businesses. They had left the fishing boats. They had left the tax booth. And they are following Jesus, walking with him, observing all that he's doing, hearing the teaching, seeing the miracles. And now Jesus is speaking, not in figurative terms, but in clear terms. In just a little while, he's going to the cross. And I'm sure among themselves, they must have said, man, I didn't think it was going to turn out like this. I did not think it was going to be this way. Here's the deal. All of us will face trials of some kind. All of us will encounter suffering. And Jesus gives us here in this passage what I'm calling a theology of suffering. And what I mean by that is this is a lens, a biblical lens through which we can interpret the struggles, the afflictions, the hardships we encounter in our lives. There are three things I want us to see from the passage today. The first one is this, and this is the toughest one for us to wrap our minds around. Our trials are purposed. This is foundational. This is integral for developing a solid theology of suffering. And it's hard to swallow, but it's where we need to begin. Our trials are purposed. In fact, notice what Jesus said in the last verse of chapter 16, in the middle of the verse. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. I want you to circle that word will, either in your Bible or on the Bible study outline. You will have tribulation. Trials and tribulations are inevitable. They're going to happen. Jesus doesn't say you might encounter some difficulties. The statistics are not in your favor. You might go through some things. There's a probability you're going to encounter troubles. No, he says absolutely, 100%, it is inevitable. You will have tribulation. Now, to be sure, Jesus is not saying that all of life is suffering, nor is he saying that everyone suffers in the same degrees. None of you are Job, okay? We don't all suffer the same way. He doesn't say there's, there's no joy in life, there's no uh, happiness in life, there's no fulfillment in life. No, but he does say, clearly, you will encounter trials. It's a certainty. It's an inevitability. In fact, this is a, a reality throughout the New Testament. Uh, I just want to show you a couple of examples where the Apostle Paul even talks about our struggles, our trials, our difficulties being purposed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about his own trials. He says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But here's the purpose. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God has purpose in trials. In fact, here's another one a couple chapters later in 2 Corinthians 4. This is for you. For this light momentary affliction is preparing, here's the purpose, for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, the scriptures provide for us a window into the purposes in the mind of God. God has a purpose for 
our troubles. Interesting word here that Jesus uses for tribulation. It's a word that means to press together. Pressure. So tribulation, hardship, pressure. This word can refer to a variety of difficulties and afflictions throughout the New Testament. In fact, I like the way the NIV translates it very simply. In this world, you will have trouble. And isn't that a true statement? In this world, you will have trouble. But these disciples, specifically in their context, chronologically, this is Thursday evening, they're taking the one-mile walk from the upper room in Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane. In this little one-mile walk, they aren't fully aware that the trouble contextually they're going to have is they're going, the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep will scatter. They will have trouble. In fact, look at verse 16 This is the specific trouble they're going to have. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. For these disciples, they don't even hear, fully recognize the freight train of trouble that's hurling down the tracks right at them. In a little while, Jesus will be gone. It's somewhat cryptic language, but obviously this is referring to the fact that he'll be arrested, he'll be savagely beaten, And he'll be hung up on a cross, exposed, humiliatingly for all the world to see. He says, you're going to suffer in ways that you never knew possible. And he gives them a heads up. In fact, look at verse 20, how he says this very plainly. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. As I thought about it in my Christian life and experience of studying the Bible, I don't think I've ever given much thought to the state of mind of these disciples between Friday and Sunday. What were they going through? What was their mindset? How were they handling the situation? We can kind of play it down and we can think, hey, come on, guys. I mean, he's coming out of the grave in three days. Lighten up, will you? It's not that big a deal. At the moment, they didn't know that, even though he told them. They weren't clear on this. This would be a hardship of fantastic proportions. This whole deal, it's over. We did not think it would turn out this way. Here's a question. Why did Jesus tell them about it? Why did Jesus warn them that they were about to go into some severe trouble? I mean, ignorance is bliss, right? It's actually a gracious thing for him to tell them. He told them very plainly, matter-of-factly, in this world, you will have tribulation. There's a sense in which Jesus, in a very profound yet paradoxical way, knows that even though trials are hard, even though suffering is difficult, knowing ahead of time is very helpful. We can recognize that when we're going through it, It's not something that's unusual or strange. Like that's exactly what Peter says in his first epistle. Peter, who was right there, and I have no doubt locked in to everything Jesus is saying on this Thursday evening, he would later write in his first epistle these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
You see, once we know and we accept suffering is a normal part of what it means to be in this world, but even beyond that, what it means to be a Christian, we're no longer surprised, we're no longer distressed when the trouble comes. In fact, look at this next slide. Once you know trouble is coming, you won't be as troubled by the trouble. In one sense, what is Jesus doing? He's managing our expectations. What did you think was going to happen, Christian? One, you're living in a world filled with sin, trouble. Two, you're following a Savior who himself was severely persecuted. Seven times we've rehearsed through John where his life was attempted to be taken. Trouble. But what did you think? You look through the book of Genesis through Revelation, and the followers of God experience great trouble. And you're living in a world that is hostile to the gospel message. Now, make no mistake here. Jesus is not calling us to live as pessimists. He's not calling us to just walk around paranoid. Oh, no, when's the next shoe going to drop? But he does want us to have a realistic outlook. Now, if you were to put this in modern theological language. Here's a $5 word for you. We often have what's called an overrealized eschatology. Mm. Say that to your friends next week. They'll make, think you're real smart. Eschatology is the study of the eschaton, the end, the last things. And sometimes we think with this overrealized eschatology that the world we live in now should be like the world we will live in then. Friends, it is not the new world yet. It is not the new heavens and earth yet. And so we can't think that this world that we're currently living in would be like that world. If you've ever flown in a commercial plane before, no doubt you've experienced what's known as turbulence, right? Anybody experienced turbulence before? If you're flying and all of a sudden the captain comes over the intercom and he says, well, you may have noticed I turned the fasten your seatbelt sign on a little earlier than normal. We're making our descent in for our landing, but we're going to encounter turbulence. Things could get rough. I don't know any passenger who says, I hope I get some turbulence on this flight, <laughs> right? I mean, it feels like the plane's going to fall apart. But what if he had never told you? What if you're just flying along and all of a sudden, whoa, everything's jostled in the plane. It is a grace for the pilot to come on the intercom and say, you need to fasten your seatbelts. It's going to get a little rough. Jesus, our pilot, Jesus, our captain, he says in the intercom right here in John 16, it's going to get a little rough. You're going to experience some turbulence. Now, what Jesus has done here and what both Peter and Paul both do and John the Apostle in the book of Revelation particularly is they explode an illusion that often exists in the Christian world. Here's the illusion. Once I become a Christian, life should be easy. Many Christians live with this false sense of reality. They're living in the illusion. If I'm a Christian, I mean, I'm serving the God of the universe Shouldn't everything be good? Shouldn't I be healthy and wealthy and wise? Shouldn't I be successful? Shouldn't all my relationships flourish? I mean, after all, I'm a child of God. I wonder if sometimes we, even as conservative, Bible-believing Christians, kind of edge into what we understand as prosperity theology. 
What is that? God's a cosmic vending machine. I put in my quarter or my $1,000 seed or my perceived obedience to God, and I think he's obligated to return back to me an easy life. That's prosperity gospel. We'll be successful. We'll be pain-free. And Jesus says, this is your captain speaking, there's some turbulence ahead. You're going to go through some trouble. Now, of course, what's wonderful about this passage is Jesus doesn't stop here. If this was the only point of the message, you'd be leaving saying that was not very encouraging. (laughs) Jesus doesn't stop there. I'm not going to stop there because not only are our trials purposed, here's the second thing, our trials are passing. Our trials are passing. They are temporary. They will not last forever. Yes, Jesus wants us to know they're definitely coming. They're inevitable, but they won't always be there. The clouds will part, the sun will shine, and Jesus says your joy will be restored. I want you to notice verse 20 with me. Bad news before the good news. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, watch this, but your sorrow will turn into joy. If you've ever studied the Bible much as a Christian, you know that that little conjunction, junction, watch your function, but is one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Yes, it's going to be hard. You will experience sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Whatever you're going through, whatever the trial is, and I know this, if you're here today, you're either one coming right out of a difficult trial Either two, smack dab in the middle of a trial, or unbeknownst to you, you're about to go right into a trial. This is the reality. But here's the promise. Your sorrow will turn to joy. In fact, this isn't just even the trial's going to be ending. Look at this next slide. It's not just that the trial will be over. Watch this. But the trial will be reversed. Your sorrow is not just going to end, but he says, I'm going to take that sorrow. I'm going to take that hardship, and I'm going to turn it. I'm going to reverse it into joy. And the promise is of a joy that is deeper and unspeakable than we could ever know. Of course, for the disciples, this is going to happen in the narrow context of three days. They don't know that yet, but it's going to happen then. For you, this total reversal of sorrow to joy may happen in three days. It may happen in three months. It may happen in three years. It may happen in three decades. It may not happen until Christ takes you home. But there will be a reversal of the sorrow. This, this is a, applied to them, but the general principle also applies to us. Each week in my sermon preparation, I I spend a lot of time and energy trying to develop illustrations that will land a principle or a point on our hearts. And I love it when there's a ready-made illustration already in the passage. So thank you, Jesus, for giving the illustration for this passage and this truth. He does that in verse 21. Look at it. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. When Amy became pregnant for the first time in our marriage um, with our first child, Aubrey, 
She happened to be the unit secretary on the labor and delivery floor at Brandon Hospital. And most of you don't know this, but at the nurses' station, there's often chatter among the nurses about particularly wimpy moms. I learned this from Amy. And so Amy was determined, I am not going to be a wimpy mom. And so she decided, I'm not going to get an epidural. I'm going to go all natural. All right, so we go to the coaching classes, the birthing classes. I learned how to coach her. She learns how to breathe, and, and I forgot all of it, obviously, when we got in there. But, but not only did we go to the coaching classes, but we wanted to document this blessed event. So 1993, I bought me this honking big VHS camcorder, right? I mean, every 1990s dad looked like they were on assignment from News Channel 9, right? They're walking around with these cameras. I'm going to document this wonderful birth. So we get in there, and she's in labor. Now, she was induced into labor, which means she had what's called a Pitocin drip through her IV, which if you don't know what that does, it makes the contractions come sooner, last longer, and be more intense. And she's all natural. So finally, she says to her coworkers, her friends are coming in, you're doing great. Give me an epidural now. I must have an epidural. No, no, you're too far along. You can't get one. So what did they do for her? They gave her some Demerol which is a narcotic, so that just meant she was knocked out cold in between contractions. And I knew a contraction was coming because all of a sudden her eyes got as big as saucers, and here it came, right? One particular time, her eyes open up, she's wide awake, and there I am with the camera. Hey, honey. <laughs> Get that thing out of my face, right? Sorry. Of course, when she fell asleep, I brought it back out, and I knew she'd want a document of the whole thing. <laughs> so finally... Aubrey comes, Aubrey's crying, which is good. I'm crying, Amy's crying, and they put Aubrey in Amy's arms, and the pain was gone. All that she'd just endured, the intense, unimaginable pain, erased. Her sorrow was reversed. And notice how Jesus connects the illustration. Good job, Jesus. Look what he says in the next verse. He says in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Friend, you need to know this. Whatever trial you're in, whatever difficulty you're facing, that trial will be over, and not only will it be over, it will be reversed. What a wonderful promise from the Lord. In fact, look at verse 18. The disciples asked a question that you're probably asking in the middle of a trial. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We need some um, parameters here, Jesus. You say a little while, is that a few minutes? Is that a few days? What do you mean by a little while? If we're gonna suffer, what does that mean? Well, Jesus doesn't tell them and he often does not tell us. For some of you today, Whatever you're going through, you need to walk in with this hope. He will turn my sorrow to joy. This pain is temporary. Our trials are passing. Our trials are purposed. But what do we do in the middle of the trial? What do we do in the hardship before it's over? That leads to the third thing I want you to see from the words of Christ. Our trials can have peace. 
Jesus says, yes, they will eventually end, but until they end, in the waiting, between the now and the not yet, you can have indescribable peace in the midst of those trials. Look at verse 33 again. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In other words, don't despair. Don't be given over to despair. And here's one thing you need to know about this peace. This peace doesn't just come when the trials are over. The peace is promised in the very middle of the trials. This is what everyone's looking for when they're suffering, when they're experiencing affliction, some kind of peace. And we can tend to think, well, the peace will come when this circumstance is over. The peace will come when things get easier. The peace will come when the trials are done. And so we can spend all of our energy trying to change the situation. Friends, this is why people take the ultimate untimely end of suicide. They're just trying to get some peace. That's not the kind of peace Jesus is offering here. Not just the peace that comes because the difficulty's over. Jesus says there's another path to peace, even in the midst of the trials, and that is this, through me. Through me, you can have peace. I don't think there's any better illustration that Jesus gives of this reality than the one that's recorded in multiple gospel accounts where they are out on the Sea of Galilee, a storm has kicked up, and these seasoned sailors are fearing for their lives And what is Jesus doing in the middle of the storm? He's asleep in the boat. Jesus, we're dying here. Peace in the middle of the storm. We need to know, and this is a fundamental driving point of the whole passage, this is a peace, again, that only comes through Christ. Look at it again. I've said these things to you that in me... (laughs) In me, you may have peace. Make no mistake about it. The kind of peace that Jesus is offering is not just a therapeutic peace. The kind of peace Jesus is offering is just not a, I need to get some alone time. I need a little me time. I need to go treat yourself. I need to go and shop, right? That's not the kind of peace that he's offering here. It is a supernatural peace, divinely granted peace. Why does Jesus say he can give us this peace? The end of verse 33, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. That word overcome, it means to conquer. It means to be victorious over. Jesus said the reason you can have peace is because I've conquered everything. I've conquered the world. The very real struggle that you go through, the very real trial that you're in right now that seems like you're in a murky mud pond and you can't get through, Jesus says, guess what? I've conquered that. I'm victor over that. In three days, this crushing defeat that it seems Jesus would take, he's gonna walk out of that grave. Isn't that fantastic? And there's one last phrase as we move to a conclusion from Christ's words here I want to leave you with. It's the response that he commends to us. 
Before he says he's overcome, he says, but take heart. I love the King James here. It says, be of good cheer. (laughs) The word literally means to take courage. Take courage. You can be courageous in the middle of the trials. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Why? Because Jesus has beaten every temptation that was thrown at him. He received an onslaught of temptation like no human has ever experienced from Satan himself, and he overcame. So he says to us today, be of good cheer. Take courage. I've overcome the world. Jesus can say this to us because, friends, he was betrayed by a friend. He was forsaken by his disciples. He was conspired against by the very religious leaders and the nation that he came to save, but yet he overcame. So he can say to us today, take courage. And friends, the greatest enemy of the human, human race is the enemy of death. And on Friday, Jesus died. Jesus was three days dead. But on that first Easter Sunday morning, he stood up and he walked out of that grave and said, I have overcome, therefore, take courage. Take courage. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Therefore, what is it? It is well. And that leads to my last thought. Because Jesus has overcome the world, I can face any trial with confidence and courage.